Hello and welcome to Fidelity Connects, a Fidelity Investments Canada podcast, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. March 2023 marks one year since the Bank of Canada raised its key benchmark interest rate for the first time since 2018, and the U.S. Federal Reserve followed suit shortly after. Now, one year later, juxtaposing messages from the BOC and the Fed have investors closely monitoring what a potential pause and raise could do to the markets. Portfolio manager Joe Overdevest joins host Brian Borsakowski today to share his outlook on Canadian and global markets and the sectors he is most excited about. So, are rising rates still the biggest overhang on the markets? How might lower inflation expectations play out in 2023? And are there any new trends that could shape investment opportunities? Brian and Joe unpack all of this and more today. This podcast was recorded on March 1st, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Joe, thanks for being here. Oh, my pleasure, Brian. So one year, I, I can't believe it's already been a year since, uh, you know, the great rate hike of 2022 <laughs> happened. Um, how would you kind of maybe, you know, looking back, characterize kind of the moves and, and where does that leave us today, uh, a year later, um, at a much higher higher rate? Well, I think we, the further you go back, I think one of the biggest things yeah, I would take away is how the market, the media, maybe just, you know, in general, generally investors put everything in extreme like in the old days it was like interest rates can never go higher right and then all of a sudden inflation well it'll be transitory and then now it's like well inflation isn't coming down and rates aren't going to be coming down for a while i think you have to watch when you put things in extremes and, and make that you know capitalize it forever and I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this but yes interest rates have moved up i think it's a resetting of, of expectations and I think, you know, the analogy we've used before is like you're you're going on a trip with the kids and, and, you know, the last kind of, you know, year and a bit have been, you know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? The kids want to know, are we there yet? Are we done with actually the, the, the raising of interest rates? Canada, of course, is closer, it seems like. At least their public comments are that we, we they want to pause here. And I think that the only thing is I would just frame, it's much like with the kids, when we get to Disneyland and we get out of the car and they're very excited, they want to have all the sugar treats. We might be eating carrots and some more healthier foods because rates aren't also going to just come back down to zero. You know, we had some very good times there. Does not mean you have you can't have co- companies that compound some great equities over time, great businesses that grow wealth. But you just have to understand there was a lot of tailwinds, especially for interest rates and liquidity in general, the last few years. Um, this I mean, brings us to. Uh, you know, a year later, March, the Bank of Canada is uh, going to make another announcement uh, very soon. Um, but they have said that they are considering pausing, yet the Fed has said there might increase rates. Um, so, you know, do you see sort of a divergence of policy happening now? And do you expect, I mean, it's hard to predict what's going to happen with the Bank of Canada always, but do you think that pause, you know, they'll actually will pause in March? 
I think the Bank of Canada wants to pause. And I think one of the biggest things is just understanding the differences of the two economies. And so one of the biggest things that, you know, a central banker worries about is probably the actual end user of especially a mortgage because that person stuff to avoid that product, right? A company can say, well, we maybe won't lend, maybe we won't do this expansion of a project, but like mortgages are a big thing. The biggest difference you see, of course, in the US, 30-year mortgages. Here in Canada, five-year mortgages. And so that's a big, big difference. When all of a sudden they realize if you start in increasing interest rates as they have, the Canadian consumer in particular is way more sensitive than the US. So I think the Bank of Canada would like to. I think um, the biggest thing probably they're concerning is obviously their economy. But as you said, they are also very much connected to the US. And so all of a sudden, if the US keeps raising rates, it, it almost draws you into it. Otherwise, you have a, an issue with your currency because the currency resets things and your competitiveness goes against you. You might have to follow suit. And so I think, you know, the biggest thing too with the markets these days is like, are we done yet? Are we done yet? I think the biggest thing also is to take a step back. We're definitely closer to the end than the beginning. And I think that's something that, you know, when we do we look at investing, often we get asked, you know, where's the bottom? Where's the top? It's just not that simple. There's, and especially with what we're talking about now, we have to take a step back and a further step back. This interest rate talk, even that the magnitude and the speed of it, when you look back in the history books, it, it, it's its own chapter of what is uniquely happening here. So trying to say with definitiveness, oh, this is the end, this is the beginning, I think we have to know more. It's, we're closer to the end. And so what that means is taking a step back and what's the next one, two, three, even five years look like for some of our companies. And, and, and not just focus on, okay, what's the next Fed rate decision? And that 25 basis points or 50, well, we're in or we're out, as opposed to what's the, what's the upside, downside? Are some of our companies looking more attractive? And of course, though, I think they'll, we have to really, like I said before, understand you are probably in a higher interest rate environment than you were in the past. But again, it's like the bigger question probably you're going to ask me is inflation too. We obviously had super high inflation. You had 8%. And I think for everyone on the audience here is like there's three big buckets that we're driving it, right? There was labor, there was supply chains, there was probably commodities. We'll go backwards. Commodities, one of the biggest ones is oil. Luckily, that's coming off. Well, I'm sure we'll dive into oil. Uh, supply chains are definitely getting looser. Anything like port data, just to ship anything across the seas, significantly lower year over year. The lastly is labor. Labor is definitely the stickiest right now. And you are seeing some job losses, but most of it actually is in white collar, which is good because the white collar labor is generally easier to move once they lose a job. The blue collar, you're seeing less. Actually, you're seeing the, some of the tightest is actually in the blue collar labor right now, which is good because those are tougher sometimes to find a new job. So labor could be sticky. So when we go from 8% inflation, you know, we might see some, some nice numbers. We're seeing that already. You know, there's some puts and takes and some always some noise from month to month. Especially December and January data, there's a lot of revisions and estimates. But when you come eight to four, just for the audience, just understand, we might go eight to four, but four to two might be the tough one. And that will be very interesting how the central bankers act in those environments, that four to two. And do we get close to three and they start saying some jawboning of the market, saying well, we're closer or our target is massaged? Well, it wasn't really two. We thought we'll average two over the next years. So that's where it becomes dangerous when you're saying, oh, I'm just going to wait exactly when they're done. The market might start sniffing out we're closer to the end. 
And of course, what happens is they start sniffing it out, multiples will start, will start expanding. Because the three biggest things in any market is valuation, liquidity, of course, and earnings. And you know, right now, one of the biggest things is equity is being drained from the system, especially uh, what's going on in the U.S. So, so given kind of all that you've said, and you know, the last couple months of the market is already March first day. It's hard to believe it's already March, but where do you sort of think um, maybe markets could go over the next year? Will they continue to be volatile? Will things settle down as inflation number, numbers potentially decline? What are you sort of, um, yeah, p- how are you positioning things? Yeah, well. We- it looks like, you know, conclusion first, looks like more an up and down market. It doesn't mean we even can't be a little positive or maybe a little negative, but I just warn the audience is there could be a lot of ups and downs. You've even seen that in the first day. You know, Brian's alluding to this. You've seen almost only two months. It feels like it's an up and down within those two months, right? And we're, we're two, only two months in. And it makes sense. So again, let's review the big one. So liquidity is being drained from the system. Okay, but again, that could start pausing as you get, you know, 12 months out or a little further out in the year. Number two is valuation. You know, TSX around 13 times earnings, S&P 500 around 17 times earnings. It's okay. It's not, you know, it's not a huge pillar of like, oh my, that's like, you know, that's super green. So it's okay. And the last one is earnings. Earnings growth was probably closer to almost high single digits. And now it's almost 0% for this year, 10% for next year. I'm using the S&P 500 just because it's more broad based. But for the TSX, you'll see similar drivers of what I'm saying. So expectations for earnings have come down. I think earnings, you know, are not really a tailwind at this point in time. They're probably more of a headwind. And so when you look out into the year, you don't really have earnings helping you out. You don't really have valuation helping you out. Liquidity is being drained a little bit. But the thing you got to watch is that you get just don't get too negative because as we start, as we go forward, the biggest overhang is interest rates. Let's be honest. There's many overhangs or you know tailwinds or you know uh, overhangs on the market at any point in time, but one of the biggest ones is interest rates. So as the year goes along, though, and central bankers start getting closer to the end, you know, you start looking out a year, yeah, valuation isn't expensive. The liquidity maybe becomes less of a headwind, but more importantly, earnings growth grows off a flat base, and you actually have some earnings growth into 2024, you could have a good environment. The reason why I say up and down is just because financial conditions, right? The market is, a, is connected to financial conditions. All of a sudden, we get excited, we go too high. The Fed won't like that, because what happens is financial conditions is a circular reference. CEOs get excited, their stock is up, they start hiring people again, they start expanding capital projects. That's inflationary, that is not good. So the Fed doesn't want animal spirits going too crazy. And trust me, they will very quickly either jawbone the market down or just increase interest rates. So you have a you know bands that kind of both sides a little bit. But again, I think you take a step back, you know, and especially the equity markets, if you find the best of breed companies in Canada and they grow earnings over time, the exact point you try to, you know, time it really won't be super beneficial as opposed to, you know, it's a great business with a high return equity growing over time. Right. So, so uh, sector-wise, let's let's dig into some of the sectors. You you cover uh, you know all of Canada, also global, and we'll get into global um, uh, areas as well. But but when you're looking at Canada, talk to me about the different sectors here. Where are the opportunities you're seeing? How are they How are they looking this year? I think we get all the different sectors. One of the ones I would say is is industrials kind of sticks out in that industrials for Canada is very uh, idiosocratic. There's so many different kind of businesses in there. You have waste businesses, rails. You even have airlines. Um, you have a very broad, ver- uh, diverse group. And the reason why it's interesting is because many of those companies 
um, sell into maybe the U.S., which might do a little better economically, but are usually more broad-based, and their customer base is very, very broad. And what's more important, too, they generally have high return equity and very low uh, leverage. And I think that's a very good combination, especially these days with interest rates moving up. And I think that's one of the themes, not just for industrials, but across the Canadian market, across the U.S. market as well, is M&A. So mergers and acquisitions, you know, if you did the last 12 months, we're kind of quiet, right? And what happens is it makes sense. Interest rates move so fast. Equity markets are a little volatile. So guess what happens? CEOs go, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm not, I don't know what's going on. I'm not acting as a seller or buyer. Now we've had some time pass and the CEOs are feeling like, okay, I, I feel a little more confident what's going on. But more importantly, I think the differentiator will be who has cash as a weapon. And cash as a weapon means there's been a lot of companies in Canada who have a great balance sheet, who don't need to rely on the debt markets, and in particular, we're often finding they're going against private equity bidders, and those private equity bidders are not as, you know, they're a little more gun-shy than they were 12 months ago. And their cost of debt has gone up, obviously, as well. So if you can use cash as a weapon, and especially if you're, you were competing against private equity, some of the more um, patient buyers in Canada could be, uh, have a very good environment in the next 12 months. Great. Yeah, let's keep going through the sectors. What about uh, what about tech? We could do some rapid fire here. <laughs> so, so tech, I would say one of the biggest things for tech is that you know we, they, there was a regime change in the old days. It was like you know grow, grow, grow. If almost like if you if you had earnings, you were a bad you were a bad CEO. Like what were you doing? Could you not find something to grow? And we're not going to give you a high price to sales ratio or whatever ratio you want to use. Well, obviously that changed. So all of a sudden, cost of debt goes up, cost of equity subsequently goes up, and you know it's it's knock on even from venture capital to the public markets. Everyone now questioning, what are you doing when can you get free cash flow positive? And so I think what's really interesting, you're seeing it already, but I think you know what's setting up for the next you know little while is who really gets it right. And you're seeing in the U.S. and seeing in Canada, some companies are really getting it. Some are bigger companies in Canada. We're laying people off already in uh, probably almost as early as June of this last year and um, making cuts, changing the executive staff in some cases and lowering their cost structure. And, you know, we recently had meetings with CEOs and, you know, for the first time I heard from certain tech executives, free cash flow, um, EBIT positive, even after, you know, uh, share-based comp will will have net earnings kind of thing, right? So even that this that paradigm shift of of acknowledging the difference from them internally is very positive. And so hearing a lot of words from them is prudence, um, cost cutting, and I think what's really interesting, a lot of these tech companies, you had a reset evaluation already. So if you can get a reset evaluation at attractive level, and they're focused on the right things and not relying on the capital markets. It could be an interesting setup. I do think in Canada in particular, you have some big ones like uh, Constellation Software and CGI Group, which uh, you know could be acquirers. And I think someone else's pain, it could be someone else's gain. Some of those tech companies that are smaller who are not transitioning properly, who do still rely on the capital markets, haven't corrected their cost structure, could be uh, targets for some of our bigger tech companies in Canada. Uh, you're coming on at a great time to talk about financials because a lot of the banks are reporting. Um, I think all of them, except maybe TD hasn't yet. Um, what have you seen from bank earnings? I think with the bank earnings right now is on the, the you know the first blush would be we've had all of them except like you said TD. Um, okay, not great. And so what's happening is the with the banks 
is that you're seeing is NIM, net interest margin, had been going up. So for the banks who are, are a big beneficiary of um, when interest rates move up, that the deposits don't really move too much. So people like you or me might say, you know what, I, I'm just going to be happy with 0% return in my, in my checking account. Well, they're lending out to someone's mortgage at a very high rate. It's a spread, it's a net interest margin. But the problem is over time, people like you and I and people in the audience go, well, maybe I should go to a GIC, maybe I should go to another product. And you start moving your deposits out. And so also net interest margin starts getting pressure or at least stops going up. We're kind of at that level now from what's being reported. So that's a headwind because the general investor was expecting maybe a few more quarters of net interest margin expansion. Number two, what's, what's uh, hurting the banks is expenses. Uh, they, they had a lot of labor inflation last you know, a year and two years actually, and in particular spending even on technology. And so many of them reporting very high costs or maybe surprising the, the street in general. Now they're all promising that the growth will slow in the second half. And there, many of them are talking about hiring freezes or definitely lo- a lot less hiring than they were in the past. Um, and I think lastly is credit. It's probably on everyone's minds here. What's, what's, to, what's the talk of credit or PCLs? Credit in general, credit provisions or PCLs are actually very low. Uh, National Bank actually had lower year over quarter over quarter even. So very little in terms of credit issues right now in Canada. Obviously, all the banks think it will be a little higher in the second half, but still at very low levels. And I think the biggest thing, that's where when you look back at banks in particular, when you see them, you when there's issues, you have to bucket in two, two buckets. Is it a balance sheet issue or income state issue? Balance sheet issue is bad, is that you know there's a huge amount of credit losses, the leverage then subsequently is too high, and they might need to raise equity. That's bad. We're not in that situation at this point in time. It's more of an earnings issue, earnings headwind. Earnings growth is subdued. Last few years have been very strong. We're slowing right now. Mortgage growth is slowing. PCLs are slowly moving up, but it's more of an earnings growth issue. But Again, take a step back. These banks get about a you know give or take five percent dividend yield. The PE or price earnings ratio eight to ten and a half times, not too bad. And ROE is generally fifteen percent. So the expectations for the banks are pretty low. And if we get a decent you know recovery in the economy, the banks are usually a good leverage on the GDP. And I think that's the biggest thing too. And we even didn't mention there at our beginning, but how this economy is a little different is jobs. Jobs are still very, very strong. And, I, you know, and it really translates when you talk to the bank earnings. I was just on a call this morning is that, you know, when they were talking is that if you don't lose your job, it's very rare that you all of a sudden just, you know, default on your mortgage, right? And I think that's what's different about different slowdowns is the magnitude is if we don't see major job losses, you know, the, the drawdown in the economy that many of the people are expecting, you know, later this year might be more shallow. And it's really, instead of it, someone losing their job, they may adjust their spending. But when you all of a sudden you lose your job, everything goes out the window and your priorities get very, very strict to the, the bare necessities. So, so uh, we're not going to make it through every sector, but we've got to talk about uh, energy and materials. Um, maybe we can start with Canada, but you also, uh, you know, have a, a global natural resources uh, fund. So to you could talk globally as well, but let's start with Canada, energy and materials. Um, what are you seeing in those two sectors? Energy materials, probably the, some of the first to give you a conclusion again, as always, first, the, the tightest supply demand would probably be copper, then oil, um, then you're getting lower into uh, agriculture, um, and then lastly would probably be natural gas, just because if we have a very warm winter, a lot of supply. 
oil, copper and oil near the top. One of the biggest beneficiaries is, is China's opening. China's really been in a shutdown for a while. China is about 20% of oil demand, but it's 50% give or take copper. And so I would say though, if you take a step back on all the commodities, you're probably asking about supply. I think demand right now is okay, just because the world, China is still just about opening up and the rest of the world is doing okay in terms of anemic growth. But the supply side is the interesting one. We're still not seeing major supply response. If anything, um, you know, the average company in oil is growing maybe, you know, 3%, maybe 4 or 5% if they're lucky. And they're holding back supply because of ESG concerns. Is ESG concerns in that, you know, the governments around the world are not going to allow them the permit, in particular like our growth in our oil sands. Their shareholders don't want them to grow to add to their CO2 emissions. Even their bankers in many cases are telling them, you know, if you get bigger, I might not be able to lend to you. My loan, my loan book for maybe oil and gas can't get bigger. So whatever your size you're at right now, that's your staying. And on the copper side, you're just seeing some, you know, some more aggressive governments around the world uh, making it very uh, apprehensive for people making big projects in particular in South American countries right now. And uh, so I think, you know, places like Chile and Panama are having some uh, concerns with their local miners. All this is holding back supply. So if demand holds in, uh, it could be an interesting backdrop. And then, and then commodities are always a global industry. But if you look beyond Canada, are there different opportunities there in the commodities and energy and material space that you're looking at? I think in Canada still is, is, is some of the greatest assets we have uh, in terms of valuation to some of the Canadian oil companies. Uh, you're talking 10% plus free cash yields in the U.S. You're talking more, more 7 8% free cash yield. Still probably a little better growth prospects, a little better on the Permian, which is in Texas. But once you go out North America, it really falls off. There's not too many great prospects out there. And like I said, even politically, um, you've run into governments that may steal your mind or you have governments who want to tax you a large degree of your oil company. Um, so generally, some of the, you know, when we look globally and the, the spectrum changes over time, the spectrum is very much some of the best copper oil companies still reside in the Canada if you want to stretch further into North America region. So um, given all that, how do you think investors maybe should be thinking about their allocations to resource-based sectors uh, given where we are in the market cycle? Well, I think with resources, obviously, it comes with greater volatility. But one of the biggest things we look at next few years is just like supply and demand. And the, and the supply picture for the audience is really simple. It's like, you think ESG um, has staying power? And it, and it seems it does. And, and, and even if it's not ESG, the, the staying power of focusing, especially on emissions, uh, by many individuals, in, in particular governments, will have a, a holding back pattern in supply, which will be positive. So really the man picture, if we stay in any kind of positive environment, uh, leads to a bullish uh, environment for commodities. Um, let's shift gears a bit uh, to just your approach. How do you consider you know, the investment landscape? How do you pick stocks and, and build your mandates? I think that when I do with investing, I would say three big things I focus on. Number one is uh, I'm a stock picker. I'm not trying to make a macro call of, of big essence and saying, you know, we're betting on the U.S. consumer or betting on oil going from, you know, 50 to 150. And that's going to be, you know, the big driver of the portfolio. I'm a stock picker. Number two, I want to leverage the competitive advantage of Fidelity. That's the size and quality investment team. Investment team, 350 investment professionals around the world do an amazing job. 
almost every 30 minutes of the business day, there's a CEO meeting. It is pretty powerful, the information you know we can get globally just to understand the mosaic of what's going on. And lastly, I have a very big focus on risk. Before we get to any investment, think about the upside, downside, where could be wrong. We embrace our own ignorance. Uh, we do a lot of risk at the portfolio level and at the stock level. And uh, these are the, some of the three big ones. And then the average day involves a lot of reading, a lot of talking to analysts, uh, company CEO meetings, a few this morning already and some later today, uh, uh, public calls with the uh, maybe like an earnings call, and uh, time to just share ideas with PMs and uh, find, again, keep churning over rocks to find the best of breed of Canada. Um, you're allowed to go off benchmark as, as uh, part of your mandate. What does that mean and, and what does that look like? To go off benchmark means uh, we're not sector neutral for Canadian-focused equity product. And so what that means is that we have different products for different individuals. This one can be plus or minus 7.5% uh, for a sector over or underweight. They'll always be driven from a bottom-up perspective. And then we can, of course, own stocks. They're not even in the benchmark. It could be an IPO or it could be a small cap. And uh, we're encouraged to find, the again, the best companies in Canada, best say 40 or 50, small cap, large cap, value or growth, wherever it may be or whatever sector it may be. I think one of the biggest things we try to do, though, is really leverage that, the investment team, like I said. And so an example would be telecom or utilities. Both are very you know, similar in terms of interest rate sensitive. We'll ask our analysts, okay, give me your best one or two across those. And we might only own one or two across both of those sectors and not own the other sector. And again, we're just trying to find the best ideas. So instead of taking a macro risk, we'll take a stock-specific risk to drive our alpha. You know, a lot of people watching uh, who are with Fidelity probably have their money in, in Canadian, in a Canadian mandate. Other people who may not be investing with Fidelity yet may have a Canadian mandate already. And I'm wondering, why Fidelity? Why, why would uh, you know, somebody want to work with Fidelity on their Canadian stocks? I think for Canadian stocks is that, for Fidelity, is, is just that, that competitive advantage. So let me even elaborate more on that. So here you have... His team is growing, so probably 25 plus people here just in the Toronto office um, that would reside a big part of the Canadian team. But the best, the benefit is that you know that's a big team just in Canada. So the size of that team is big, but more importantly, the quality of the team, the, the metrics that team has done over the last few years, in particular that analyst team, are amazing. They make our jobs a lot easier. But then from a Canadian perspective, you have 350 investment professionals around the world. So again, it's like you know, Open Text does a deal and they buy a US company. So what do we do? Well, we have an open tax analyst here. We have full coverage. So again, some of our competitors might not have full coverage of every company. So even if I own it or don't own it, we have analysts writing research notes every three months, talking to the company every, you know, many cases every three months. I'm joining these calls often. So all of a sudden, something happens. I'm not like brushing up on it. Oh, what's the story? I, I know the story. I probably even know the CEO. So the analyst also reads, uh, does the report on it. Number two is we have a high yield team who actually resides in our offices. The high yield team looks at the debt, gives their opinion of it. Guess what? They bought a, a U.S. tech company. Well, we have, again, 350 investment professionals around the world. There's a U.S. tech team as well. What do we think of the target, right? Then also, too, we hunt in packs. We don't hunt alone. So we have growth PMs. We have value PMs. We have small cap. We have large cap. We have different PMs looking at this, so we'll often talk and go, you know, what do you think of this? And sometimes it's interesting to hear different opinions and even hear some cases the opposite opinion. But all these inputs together make us hopefully give the best decision on behalf of our clients. And I think that's important. It's like 
it's not just one man or woman saying buy or sell. It's using multiple inputs to increase our conviction. And that's the difference between buying a company that's 0.5% of your portfolio or 5% of your portfolio. It's getting inputs from the equity analysts, the high yield team, some of your peers, the, the competitors or, peer, or, or actual customers of that ecosystem. And lastly, having a management meeting. And, we, and again, we're very humbled by the management access we get. But all these inputs together give you that conviction to have not just a position, but also the size of the position. Um, we just have a um, couple minutes left, and uh, I wonder, you, you've talked a lot about having those conversations with CEOs. You mentioned a little bit with tech CEOs, some of the conversations that you're having, but um, maybe as a, as a sort of a parting, uh, you know, uh, something for people to think about is what are executives thinking about today in this environment? What are those conversations you're having? As I said, M&A, they're thinking there could be more M&A. They're finding the private equity players are not as active. Number two, costs are still sticky, especially labor. Um, but they're definitely not as hiring as much as they used to. And they're definitely not giving as many increases. But they, they, the year-over-year comps are still sticky. Uh, three, we're still seeing prices stick. What I mean by that is the strong companies are still able to uh, price your product and and re receive customer feedback that's okay at this point in time. So you're still getting some margin leverage, which is good. Again, the, the, the strong and weak, you definitely see a difference, but the strong companies are still uh, providing good pricing. Lastly, I would say the, the, the CEOs a lot of times will ask us, what are you seeing in the economy? Because they're seeing it still resilient, I would say. And it's not like weak. Again, we have to sometimes take a step back. There's a lot of media headlines. When you're in a recession, and CEOs will tell you this, and our PMs will tell you this too, you'll know when you're in a recession. Like it will be like, we're talking about cutting, we're laying people off. These CEOs are like, you know, they're stressed. We're definitely not seeing this in point in time. So I think a lot of it is actually just the CEOs themselves bracing for a potential slowdown as opposed to seeing a slowdown right now. So taking the corrective action for it. But you know, the feedback they're seeing is generally a pretty resilient consumer at this point in time. And the biggest thing most of them will come back to is, is jobs are still there. And uh, when you have your job, you're still spending. Perfect. We will leave it there. Um, so much to talk about. So uh, plenty more in the next conversation we have. But thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity Connects podcast. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, leave a review or a five-star rating. Fidelity mutual funds and ETFs are available by working with a financial advisor or through an online brokerage account. Visit fidelity.ca slash how to buy for more information. And while visiting fidelity.ca, you can also find information on future live webcasts. And don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks again. See you next time.